At home, like it's very difficult to actually get into anything specialised if you've just qualified. You, know, you can be very lucky, but at the time when I qualified, there was terrible unemployment in the nursing field, and I feel I was very lucky to have got out of Baghdad at the time when Park was starting off, because I was here at the very beginning, and like I feel a certain sense of loyalty to the place now. Like that, I feel like one of the old pioneers, like with us, the Sheridan, and the whole lot. Like it's been a great teamwork more so than anything, and the fact as well that. You know, you can approach anybody really, you can approach consultants, it's different from at home, like there's not the same... It's far less formal than Exactly, uh, exactly. Well, it has to be because we're living... In a community. ...community together, yes. we're so closely knit really, but you just have to get on. You know, there's some people who may not get on with at home, but you get on with out here, you know. It's just... Are you doing work here that uh, you wouldn't have been let do at home in effect? Oh, definitely. Well, I had no experience at all in cardiac surgery, none at all. Like the same age, didn't do cardiac surgery, and I feel I've learned so much. Like I've gained so much knowledge, really. And the thing is, I think if you've any bit of go, really, and you hear, they let you go ahead. They let you use your own initiative. And with the patients, it's different. They're type, they're kind of unpredictable, really, um, in comparison to at home. Like at home, you can, they can express their viewpoint. Well, here you tend to be more observant. That little bit more observant, really. It's uh, almost 10 years now, John. In fact, it is 10 years this month uh, since we started Park. Uh, it was in April 1975. And uh, it really came about uh, through uh, Erlingus, uh, which is the company I was working for at the time, uh, looking around for additional areas in which to diversify. Uh, at the time of the beginning of the, the last recession, or perhaps the recession that hasn't ended, but uh, nevertheless, uh, it was a recessionary time. And uh, at the time, I was working in the personnel department, and in our particular area, we felt that we uh, could offer services to people outside of the airline uh, in the personnel consultancy world, particularly in recruitment. And this would be pilots and the like. Well, it, not really. Uh, it was all uh, management, professional and technical people. And in fact, that's one of the very reasons why we chose a name such as PARC, which stands for Personnel and Recruitment Consultants, uh, so that we wouldn't be seen simply as people who recruited pilots and air hostesses or purely airline people. And uh, so we set out to offer those services. Now, we uh, did so internationally partly because it's a very big market out there, and partly because with our airline background, we were used to the international marketplace. We started off by offering uh, services to companies in the Middle East and Africa, and uh, we developed that over the following few years to other parts of the world as well. But our first major breakthrough, I suppose, came in 76 when we got a major contract with the mining companies in Zambia to provide them with people like 
uh, mining engineers, geologists, accountants, computer people, that sort of thing. And uh, while we were working with them, they asked us if we would recruit some medical people for them, uh, nurses principally, but also some doctors and technicians. And uh, we began to do that and fairly quickly recognized that that was a whole marketplace in itself, uh, not just in Zambia, but in various parts of the world, uh, particularly the US at the time. They were recruiting a lot of nurses and also in the UK and in the Middle East. So we established in 1978 a separate medical recruitment division. And uh, we now had two divisions, a general recruitment division and a medical one. The project management uh, business, although starting with engineers and architects, quantity surveyors and people in that field, uh, developed in 1982 into the hospital management world. Now, we were fortunate in that we got an opportunity to bid on a hospital management project in Iraq, and after some six months of negotiations and a lot of hard work in the background trying to put it together, uh, we were successful in being awarded this uh, contract against a lot of international competition from uh, the US and from the UK and indeed from Sweden. But nevertheless, we were uh, successful and we began working on that project in uh, May of 1983. Uh, that is now by far our biggest project and has proven to be very <laughs> successful. It has been uh, renewed for another two years just recently, and we would be hopeful of spending many more years uh, in Iraq on that project and, and hopefully on many others. Now, uh, 10 years later, uh, PARC is uh, very much more a management services uh, organization uh, than a pure recruitment company uh, as it was when we started out. Well, it was simply a matter of, in a, again, in a build-up stage of a, of a project of that size, one really has to focus on cash flow. And when you have such a large operational requirement of getting people on the ground, managing the thing locally, you do need someone at a reasonably senior level to keep an eye on the whole financial position of the company. So, so you came down as a financial troubleshooter, in effect? Well, to some extent, it, it was a good decision to have someone come down in a financial role to oversee the financial side and of it. And what did you do? You stopped spending when the money was running out, didn't you? Well, um, I wouldn't put it quite that bluntly, but uh, one... <laughs> I never expect an accountant to put anything <laughs> bluntly like that. But uh, basically it's a matter of matching. It was a matter of matching the inflows with the outflows. Uh, we at that time, naturally in the startup, had difficulties like any project starting. And it was a matter of simply managing the inflows with the outflows. And that was quickly overcome by August, September 1983, the thing was flowing properly. And we had good control in the financial position and we could then grow in terms of the operation and service to the client. And that really was the objective. In effect, you had had a large advance from the Iraqi government to, had you to set it up. We had indeed. This is a normal feature of Middle Eastern projects where uh, a major Arab client employs a Western organization for whatever service what tends to happen is there's a requirement for a very large and swift mobilization of people and resources to get the project up and running on the ground. And naturally, to do that, the contracting company, in this case Park, required a large advance payment, which is a, it's a fairly standard thing. 
thing there. Uh, What's the type of the hospital? Ibn al-Batar. What does that mean? Well, he's the son of the blacksmith. Ibn al-Batar, uh, he was a famous uh, Iraqi physician of three or four hundred years ago. And uh, curiously enough, he was came originally from Spain, so it's quite appropriate that uh, that you know it should be named after the hospital should be named after him because he was the great medical era, great Iraqi medical. Well, era. He, he practiced in Baghdad in those days. Mm. As I said, being not being uh, a native-born Iraqi, it's appropriate in a way that. The hospital should be named after him, although I'm sure that wasn't the reason mm. it was done, but it's just a coincidence. Because this is almost entirely staffed by expatriates. That's right. That was the whole object, that it, the, they would have a, an expatriate hospital in Iraq. It was the first venture of this type that the Iraqi government have had. You've been with them from the very beginning? Well, not the very beginning, but uh, I've been here since the hospital opened, but... Uh, you know, the, I wasn't involved in the planning stages of, of the uh, when Park were first. Uh, but you knew it when it was more or less in its embryo stage. Oh, well, I came here uh, the day it opened, yeah. uh, May '83. It opened, and fifteenth uh, of May, and uh, we took in our first patient. At least we saw the first patient the next day as outpatient, and we took in patients uh, within three weeks of the place being officially opened. You don't take people in off the street here? Oh, no. Uh, they all have to have authorization either from the Ministry of Health or from the Presidential Office. They have to get uh, special permission to come here. And we have to uh, ensure that every patient has this official form before we can see them, before the patient can be registered. You're strictly a referral hospital? Oh, strictly referral, because the patients are seen by a group of Iraqi specialists uh, before we see them unless they have uh, the presidential uh, permission to come. They may get that for uh, other reasons than uh, strictly medical ones, if there are people of uh, importance in the political system, high-ranking people of one sort or another, they get special permission. But I that's not the usual way, though. I know most of your staff is, is Irish. Predominantly, the recruitment is done there. Yeah. But you do recruit from all over the world where the need is uh, high for specialists. Uh, how difficult is it to fill the specialist roles? Well, it's very, it's very difficult to get the calibre of people you want because of the nature of the work. Uh, the work is uh, difficult even for specialists and uh, you want people of experience uh, who are also uh, adaptable. And, and you get them out coming out for very short periods sometimes. Well, that's uh, we're driven to that. It's necessity rather than choice. And when that happens, mm. you line up the work for them in advance. We do, yes. Well, these people would all have been seen by other uh, specialists, our uh, 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 physicians or surgeons, and they would decide, say, this person is is outside the scope of a general sergeant and he would need uh, say a plastic surgeon to deal with his problem. Mm. You get all the nurses you need Ursula, do you? Yes, to date we haven't had problems uh, getting nurses for this hospital. Mostly Irish? Uh, mostly Irish, 90% Irish, uh, some from the UK and uh, one from Sweden. However, um, it 
it can be difficult to get specialist nurses and this is where we look for people on leave of absence specialist nurses like those renal trained or intensive care these be senior girls usually yes senior nurses yes yeah. with experience in their specialist fields hmm. and uh, here in the hospital you have a fairly high ratio of nurses to patient have you we have yes we have 140 nurses for 100 beds and uh, this is quite high by Irish standards. However, uh, the hospital is a tertiary referral hospital and we tend to have a high majority of patients who, um, using nursing terminology, would be bed-bound. They would be intensive nursing cases. So therefore, we do require extra nurses. But this must appall the Iraqis. Uh, they don't have this idea of nursing uh, before you came. No, in Iraq, the ratio of nurse to uh, patient is very, very low indeed. And um, however, they, um, most of the Iraqi doctors have trained in Europe or in the States, so they know the correct ratios, but it's very difficult to get Iraqi girls to go into nursing because of the cultural problems related to the profession. What, the nurse in Iraq was not regarded as... A desirable job. That's right, yeah. Nursing generally um, in uh, the Arab world and the Muslim culture is uh, not considered a profession at all. Indeed, it's considered a very low-grade job and it is extremely difficult to get uh, girls with an educational background to go into nursing. Well, have you got any Iraqi nurses? At the moment, we have three Iraqi nurses, and uh, this number will increase in the very near future to 10. These are girls who've done a four-year BSc nursing course, and um, they have a high academic knowledge, and they have come to us for a clinical experience. But we find that they're very good, and uh, with more help in their own hospitals and a better backup service with middle management, I think that they would be able to do very well. Tell me something, Ursula, about the uh, problems you come across in relation to local customs and taboos and religion. Most of the problems we come up against are, are, are minor ones. and. Um, uh, mainly uh, those related to perhaps a patient dying. Uh, the Muslims do not like you to uh, touch the body as the patient is near death or after death. Uh, the custom is to turn the head of the patient towards Mecca and uh, occasionally a member of the family or a holy man will come and read the Quran. After death, we do not touch patients at all, and it is very unusual that post-mortems are carried out because um, it's unusual to invade the body after death. So post-mortems are only carried out for police cases. Other um, customs are um, to we have to be careful of the dietary requirements of patients. There are certain foods which are forbidden by the Koran such as pork and bacon uh, products. Um, so we, don't, we do not serve these foods. Uh, we have Iraqi chefs who look after the uh, catering needs of our patients. What uh, about fasting? Uh, fasting uh, takes place during Ramadan for um, a long period. And um, this can present problems 
mostly in relation to our Iraqi staff. Um, the, most of the staff that I deal with are the interpreters, the receptionists, the telephonists. And they fast for a very long period from uh, sunrise to sunset. So therefore their work output decreases greatly during the day. So one has to be aware of this and um, our work in fact in the hospital decreases during the Ramadan period. It's a very savage fast. They don't, it's not alone food, it's also liquid. That's right. No food or drink passes. Their and lips. on a hot summer's day? On a hot summer's day, which is always when Ramadan is, uh, this is uh, very, very hard on them and they stick very rigidly to it. And in fact, we notice at the end of the period that a few of our plumper girls have lost a few kilos. What about your patients? Do they observe it or do they overcome their religious scruples if they are? Uh, patients are exempt from uh, fasting. How do you get on with the Iraqi people, patients? I find them very friendly, warm people. Your relationship with them is very different from patients you'd have at home. Because first of all, you have a communication barrier, but it seems to be no problem in the end. You just walk in saying good morning or good evening if you're on an evening duty. And they're just so glad to see you and put out a hand and give you a hug and it's all so natural. It's, it's very nice and touching. It's not a problem that their families tend to invade the wards, no? Well, sometimes they can be sort of over-anxious, really, about their relatives, but I suppose you can understand. I mean, I think in any country, if you had somebody sick belong to you, you were anxious as well. But it's just to us. They're very um, sort of family-orientated people anyway in this country. So if one person is sick, you have the whole family in. When you produce a basin of water the first morning, John, they just look at you and say, where are you going with that? Like, I mean, you know, they're <laughs> and when they're going home, they're demanding basins every five minutes. It's just amazing. They love to learn, really. I mean, we sort of, with our Western influence, I suppose we sort of, it's such an impact upon them initially. Like they're looking at us very sort of apprehensively and sort of saying, like, what are these all about, you know? But, you know, it's amazing like, how they can, you can really get around them after a while. It just, it takes, it's when you break through the initial barrier, I think that's it then. Like, you know, they treat you as one of themselves. And I think, you know, that they're so simple, really, in their own way. Like, they're very, I mean, in some ways they're sort of, very like the Irish, really. They don't demand a lot of people, really, as such. Is there a problem working in intensive care? In many of the other wards, the family are in attendance. You pass them all down the corridor and they're in the rooms with the patients and so on. Well, you can't have that in intensive care. Well, it's, it's quite controlled now, but initially, you know, in intensive care, they're very, very ill and relatives can't really accept us like they expect us to walk miracles really in a lot of cases John which is sad like because I suppose some of them have put all their life savings into the fact that you know in the hope they were going to do something but some cases I mean just you know there's no hope really you know but you have to sort of when you bring them in initially you have to explain everything before they come in because they let loose they're not they, they let their emotions out really in that comparison to us they don't keep their inner feelings in at all they just they absolutely go hysterical now and while intensive care it's sort of you know there's no like a lot of the patients really that are very ill they're being ventilated so 
patient actually it's not a sudden thing you can build it up with the relatives you can sort of say well they are very ill well okay she will have the odd they will have circles of disease and die suddenly and that you know well the ward's different you have all the other patients that get involved the whole like everybody knows everybody else's business i mean it's not like at home that people sort of will have a certain sense of privacy or they'll respect other people's privacy while <laughs> the boys here everybody's involved they're just it's just no control in them and like they all get upset for one another and i don't know they, they amaze me in so many ways really you know as a people, the Iraqis seem to live for one another. It's, uh, in some ways, not in all ways. They can be quite selfish towards each other as well. In some ways, like they can, if somebody's very ill, they're all involved and they're all very helpful. But then they can be sort of selfish. They may not want such and such in the bed next to them, or they're a bit choosy like that, you know. Like, you know, but you know, we sort them out all right, like you know, really, like ah, you know, you can get around them. It's all a matter of coaxing them and. There are times when you're sort of saying, oh, you know, I'm not able to cope with this. But I think, you know, in the end of every day, I must say I get great job satisfaction. There's never a day I can't say I don't look forward to going into work. I mean, as a, as a nurse, you're aware of what's wrong with the patients by observing them and listening to them. It's generally not a problem, really. And adults stay with children under nine years, so if they become distressed or upset, you give them, you give the adults a bed beside the child, do you? Well, chairs. Chairs are generally, they're in bed with the child. They aren't supposed to be, but they are. So you switch the rules. You're not too worried about it. No, we're not. These are local customs, and uh, this is the way it's done. Oh, yes. I mean, if there's a spare bed at all, you'll find somebody in it, a relation. They just hop into any bed and pay them for a rest, you know, at any time of day. And they feed the child and everything else, do they? Yes, they oh, encouragement. <laughs> yeah. Some of them are better than others. We actually have quite funny situations where fathers in particular jump into the bed and push the child out. And you find the patients wandering around, fathers fast asleep in the bed. Snoring in Some of them get very attached to the hospital and they're supposed to be discharged. They won't go. They won't go home. <laughs> Any pain at all and they just return, you know. How do you get on? by and large with the Iraqi authorities, well, with the Ministry on, for Health. We get on very well here with them, yes. We, our relations with them are very good. And uh, they are very approachable. I mean, it's much easier here for uh, somebody to see a minister than it is in Ireland. They're, the custom here is that, uh, by and large, ministers are accessible. And uh, the usual thing in any Iraqi official building is that the office door is open. Whereas, as you know, in most uh, Irish offices, the doors kept shut, even in the most uh, junior people keep their doors shut. But in, in, in Iraq, the custom is to leave your door open. And people, I mean, as we talk now, somebody is quite liable to walk through that door and uh, approach me about some problem or other, and almost without apology, I might say. They'll uh, overlook the fact that you're here and they'll... Uh, they think very little of interrupting whatever is going on. What about language difficulties? Is there a difficulty of interpretation, a difficulty of conveying meanings? Yes, that's probably our single biggest problem. Uh, as most people are aware, the uh, patient-nurse relationship relies almost totally on communication, verbal communication. And al although there are other 
communication skills, the verbal is the one most used. And our nurses find this extremely frustrating and difficult to deal with, the fact that they cannot verbally communicate with the patients. However, many of them have developed a, a pidgin uh, Arabic language and um, they have, um, we use interpreters. However, um, occasionally we run into trouble. For example, uh, a very common phrase used in, in our own hospitals at home is uh, you call somebody a bold monkey, get back into bed immediately, you shouldn't have got out of bed. Now that is considered extremely rude phrase here and an, a nurse got into trouble uh, over using this phrase. However, when it was explained that this is only used in fun with amongst ourselves, then uh, this was understood. And so we have to be careful what we say to patients and what phrases we use. Does she have any family? And this Oxfam How old are they? One from one to four, one to three, one to four, one to four, who gave her that tablet? So she doesn't know what the tablet is. No. She doesn't know why she's taking it. She is likely to get better, progressively better, in the next few months. Mm -hmm. And all the x-rays that have been done uh, do not show any abnormality. Is she happy about her? Yeah, I'm happy about her. 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 I'm which went through last summer leading up to December 84 when the contract was signed. Um, there were some interesting aspects to the negotiations in relation to language in that naturally um, the bulk of the real negotiation was conducted in English. 
but around the table what tended to happen was that the Iraqis when we finished or became bogged down on a particular issue or we were entrenched on each side on a particular issue they would break off into Arabic to s discuss their strategy and we would make a particular point of breaking off into Irish <laughs> uh, and uh, that was First of all, there were two aspects to that, two objectives. One was to make the point that if you guys have a language of your own that we don't understand, we want to remind you that we have a language of our own. We are Irish and we speak Irish and uh, we can converse. That was the point-making bit. But there was also the aspect of uh, security or confidentiality. We really, as we discussed around the table with the, uh, our Iraqi colleagues, we really had to be careful on certain aspects and we conducted certain amount of our discussions at the table in front of them through Irish. And Greek. it was a bit like speaking behind closed doors. It was, it was ideal. Okay, so Greek meeting Greek. Indeed. <laughs> it's interesting that in relation to languages and Arabic and our using Irish, etc., we have a driver called Mahadi. Who is he's Iraqi, is he? Well, originally he is Syrian, but he's been in Iraq for many years and is an Iraqi citizen, etc., and indeed was in the Iraqi army. But uh, he made a particular point of learning as much Irish as he could uh, while he served uh, us in the project office. Indeed, I got quite a shock on one of my first trips to Baghdad, driving through the city. And Mahdi was driving. And my in mid-July, <coughs> the temperature was quite high. And in the car, despite the air conditioning, it was quite stifling. And my instinctive Irish reaction was to open the window. But as I did that, I heard the voice on my left from the Arab driver saying, doing on Fuinog. And frankly, it didn't register initially. I got quite a, I said, I'm sorry? He said, doing on Fuinog. And I suddenly realized he was saying, close the window. And he was having a bit of a joke. And a similar situation happened. Uh, when in fact, traveling to Babylon one day with, again, Mahadi was taking us. And the car broke down, and his reaction was to throw his arms in the air and say, Ton Glush Ton Brishta. It's quite funny. Well, one of the big worries that people had coming out here was the fact that they would be left out of the mainstream in consideration for jobs when they returned to Ireland and that their experience here might not be recognized. In fact, uh, what has happened with the initial people who have come out here uh, proves that this would, uh, is untrue. Um, the junior doctors who have been preparing for examinations have done quite well, two of them passing the membership examination since they came here, and one of them has in fact been successful in getting into a radiology training scheme on return to Ireland so that uh, he has advanced his career uh, through being out here. There is a lot of contact with visiting specialists from Dublin which enables uh, junior doctors to make an impression and if this is uh, favourable it will certainly help their careers on returning to Ireland. At a more senior level, uh, three of the consultants who were here were senior registrars in Ireland and whilst they were uh, at Tivnobatar Hospital, they were successful in obtaining consultant appointments back in Ireland. So I think again this uh, indicates that um, people will not do any harm to their career in coming out here and from a practical point of view, the type of case material that we're seeing and the, the range of pathology is such that I think that uh, it gives excellent experience out here because we're really seeing diseases that were described in the textbooks in Europe and North America 20 or 30 years ago but we have an opportunity to treat these diseases now with, with uh, excellent facilities.
Many of the patients that we see have advanced disease. In my specialty, for instance, they have advanced rheumatic heart disease. This is rarely seen in Europe now. Uh, it's one of the less common indications for cardiac surgery. And when we do see it, uh, the disease is usually present in a, in a mild form at an early stage. So that uh, perhaps it sounds somewhat morbid to say that we see things that are more interesting because they're very advanced but equally we can do a lot more in a more dramatic fashion for the, the patient uh, by way of both medical treatment and cardiac surgery. Um, the disease entities also that we are seeing, we're going back uh, in time because uh, nowadays with successful medical treatment at home, we don't see the complications that occur in, in these diseases that we're seeing, we're seeing out here. The transplant program has gone exceptionally well but I wouldn't say it's the most difficult from the medical technical point of view. It's mainly kidney, isn't it? Oh, it's all kidney transplants, yes, yes. Oh, we don't do liver or cardiac transplants, but... Uh, and how many kidney transplants would you have done? Uh, I think the current figure is 65. Is there any difficulty in getting a supply of donors? Well, they're all uh, living-related donors. We don't have uh, cadaver... Uh, cadaver kidneys here f available for transplant because Why? of well it's the uh, shall we say the uh, social customs of the country that uh, the uh, dead body is sacrosanct and uh, it's it's not uh, it's not acceptable yes to remove organs from people who are recently dead what happens if a a dead man has a pacemaker, which could be recycled. Well, we c we're not allowed to take out that pacemaker, even though it's uh, quite an expensive piece of machinery. But uh, uh, this would probably change with the years. Recently, we've got, uh, they've arranged for cornea to be removed for grafting the eyes. And uh, I'm sure kidney transplant will come in. It's not actually against the Muslim religion. It's you mean from a dead body? From yes, a from a dead body, yes. It's not actually against the Muslim religion, but uh, as I say, it's, it hasn't been customary. Mm. And it's, uh, I think it's not acceptable to the general run of the population. What about strange diseases? You must come across diseases that are not very yeah. common in Ireland. Yes, well, the principal ones are parasitic uh, infections, which uh, don't occur, occur very rarely in, in Ireland. Uh, there's one called hydatid disease, which is uh, due to a worm which uh, affects, the, affects, or affects man through ingestion of uh, sheep and through dogs, uh, scavenging with sheep, dead sheep, that the, the thing is introduced into the human body. And there's also another one that comes in through the skin, which you can get from stagnant water. Can you cope with these things? Yes, uh, you can. They're, they mainly present as surgical problems, these hydatids, sometimes as brain tumours, sometimes in the liver and uh, other organs. But they're quite, it's, Iraq is, you might say, notorious for this type of infection. And the kidney transplants here uh, all have to come from the family? Usually a member of the family. Sometimes the um, members of the family get very apprehensive about the whole uh, situation and sometimes they back out. Do they? In, we've had quite a number of um, members of the family backing out. But then this 
haven't seemed to have any problems. They, um, another member of the family usually comes up willing to give his or her kidney. But uh, the kidney transplants have been very successful so far. What kind of success rate has there been? Uh, um, very high? Very high success rate, uh, about 90%, over 90% success rate. Very pleased with it. We do two transplants a week, an average two transplants a week. And, uh, and that's very advanced surgery, is it? It is. <coughs> we have the, we have two theatres in progress. First, we have the donor in the theatre next door to here, and we have the recipient here. Oh, it's instantaneous. <coughs> it is. So whilst the um, the surgeon is removing the kidney next door, the surgeon with the recipient here is preparing uh, the patient for the kidney. And then it comes through and it's ready and they work in, in uh, unison to, to get the kidney in. And as I said, it's been very successful and they're very pleased. But the blood could have been too thick and they shot it off. It may not have been well hydrated enough. There's a lot of preparatory work before a kidney transplant. Oh, yeah. This, this, is a, this is really the part of the first stage. Where we get their, their blood in proper condition through dialysis. How come that the blood doesn't spurt when you cut there? Well, these are small capillaries they're cutting through now. So we've got a big vessel that will start to bleed a lot. Is this a difficult operation you're doing? Um, it's not difficult. Technically, it can be tedious. Very small veins you work yeah, with. Yeah, sometimes quite small. Then you do a microscopic anastomosis. How long will the operation take? It varies about three quarters of an hour or an hour or longer. Very tiring? No. Tiring on the assistant. <laughs> the assistant just smiles grimly behind his mask. <laughs> I'm trying not to find the vein without damaging it. I've seen where it is on the skin for the operation. So I've marked the site. Hi, Sammy, please. <coughs> It's very exact work. Yes. It's a basic vascular procedure. It's very important for the patient that you get good access. You've got good access. When we say access, we mean for dialysis, that you can stick needles in and get good flow off so that you can dialyze them easily. <coughs> in that situation, the patient did, um, can be easily dialyzed. There are no operative problems. If you look in, you can see the vein there running down, that blue, properly blue structure. Ah, yes. And you've just split the skin, and the vein is now clearly visible. Yes. Tiny, though. Small vein, that's right. Now I'm going to look for the artery that goes down along here that you feel when you're taking the pulse. 
this operation is, is very dependent on the anaesthetist, <coughs> Dr. Conroy. Saying how important the anaesthesia is here, the, the anaesthetist will fill them up with um, the anaesthetic agent to make the veins bigger, to make the blood flow better. And also he'll give them a lot of... six minutes before we start feeding the patients. Um, we've got about 10 minutes to feed them on the belt. Then it leaves us about another 20, 25 minutes to get the staff when she's ready. Uh, how many meals do you put up? Um, about 800 a day, on average. And uh, very high quality from what I've seen of them. Um, well, well thought of among the staff, certainly. Uh, yeah, well, it's not for me to comment. We, we, don't, we, do, you know, we do as best we can with the materials available. Do you have any problems with uh, supplying the patients, you know, on religious grounds and that kind of thing? Um, no, the majority of patients are strict Muslims. Um, we, we employ Iraqi cooks. Um, we stick to the local diet as much as possible. You're on the transport here, Jerry. Are there problems attached to this? Well, from, I suppose from time to time there's problems attached to it. What have you got here? Um, we've all mostly Nissan patrols. We've something like 16 Nissan patrols. Um, the big ones, we've uh, 14 of them, and long wheel based, um, especially for the desert and hard road conditions and things like that here. Special tyres and all that. Special tyres, yeah. And uh, we've six buses for carrying the local people to and from work. We have to collect them every morning and bus them home every evening. And, call out and call in we have to provide transport you know, on a 24-hour basis so the transport fleet is running 24 hours a day what about the the trucks how do you keep them on the road any problems about that spare parts well spare parts is a problem we get it as much as we can from kuwait but uh, sometimes we might have some of the patrols off the road for a couple of weeks waiting on special types of parts for them like seals and brake pads and you know, clutches and things like that. We try and contact some of the camps or some of the people here who will be going down and bring them back for us, you know. And we're always on the lookout for somebody going that's served. Even somebody travelling to Dublin might bring back some spare parts. Even like wiper blades is a problem, which you wouldn't think. But um, I've brought back the last time I was home myself, I brought back 15 sets of wiper blades, you know. That's the type of thing that you can't get here this with the Nissan. So it's a kind of make-do thing. It is, yeah. You have yeah, to try and keep them on the road. Yeah, it's uh, it's a problem from time to time, you know, especially during in the wet season. It's not too bad now. You can get away with a lot of things that you don't need to use, you know. But um, every day brings its own special problems of one kind or another, you know. I think it's, it's unique that uh, here, that there's a project uh, managed by an Irish company, largely staffed uh, from Ireland. It's given everybody a, a tremendous sense of pride to participate in it. And I think that has allowed uh, achievements, it's given way to uh, achievements which uh, would not occur 
uh, from an Irish group who, for example, would be a, a small group within an international Part of a conglomerate. Uh, conglomerate. Yes. In a larger project, I think there's a there's a to use the jargon synergism that 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 occurs on a project like this, originating in Ireland and managed by an Irish company. And the, uh, there's a pride in being Irish here. Yeah. Yes, indeed.